Let's uh, turn this morning in the Word of God to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to pick up the reading at verse 11. And read all the way down to chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning of, at verse 11, and you'll find that on page uh, 1228, if you haven't found it yet. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that One has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then this is our text. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. If you know the story of Martin Luther at all, you know how he was plagued by spiritual torments. And because of this anxiety about his standing before God, he did all sorts of things in order to find peace with God. He joined a monastery, which is the first thing that you could do in those days if you were not sure of your relationship to God. And followed all the rules of the monastery assiduously, even adding, even adding to those rules things that he should do. He would pray all night. Many sleepless nights were employed in this way. He would fast for days. He would harm himself, self-flagellation, that's called, all in attempt 
to find peace with God. He pursued it with great intensity. But what he found was that as he pursued it in these ways, the God whose favor he sought seemed to be further and further away. And he had a developing sense that God was angry with him. Well, as painful as the experience might have been for Luther, we are very grateful that God in his providence led Luther along these paths. Because when Luther found light in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he became the instrument of God to help the church recover the light of the gospel that had been so beclouded by tradition and error. It was Luther, you remember, who started the Reformation in 1517 by nailing uh, the 95 Theses to the church door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And it was that act that unleashed this whole discussion and debate, particularly about how we can become right with God. The whole Reformation, which we celebrate in a particular way this coming Tuesday, this whole Reformation was to bring gospel clarity to the burning question, how can I, a sinner, be reconciled with a holy God? And so I thought this morning as we celebrate Reformation and as we are humbled that we are privileged to be the heirs of the Reformation, I thought this morning that we would focus our attention on 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It is a passage that I have referred to numerous times throughout my ministry. It is never a passage that I have actually preached. And it was such a privilege for me this week to meditate on the grand gospel truths of reconciliation that are found here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. The first thing I want to note, however, is that the context of this great verse is reconciliation, a reconciliation that comes from God. We need reconciliation as sinners because we've rebelled against God. We have turned away. We have followed all too often, as we pray this morning, our own devices and our own desires, wandering like sheep away from the shepherd. And it isn't just benignly wandering away like, oh, we didn't realize that we should have followed him. It is more intense than that. There's this hostility between us and God, this hatred of him by nature. It's not just that we don't follow him. It's that we don't want to follow him and don't think that he's deserving of being followed. And so there's this enmity, this clash between us and God, and between God and us. And it cries out for reconciliation, for the restoration of relationship. And here Paul, the Apostle Paul says, this is the very thing that God does. Notice he starts it off with, uh, he talks about in verse 18, about how through Christ God reconciled us to himself. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, in, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. So it tells us what God has done. And then it talks about what the apostles must do, that God had given to them the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18, God had entrusted to them, verse 19, the message of reconciliation. 
and the apostles as ambassadors of Christ urge people to be reconciled to God. It's all about reconciliation. And it's a reconciliation that is from God. We weren't asking to be reconciled to God. We weren't pursuing a friendship with the Lord. We were happy to have Him at arm's length for Him to be completely away from us. We were hiding from God, but it's God who took the initiative. It is God who in Christ was reconciling the world to Himself. And it was God who gave the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation to the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. It's not like they thought, hey, reconciliation is such a wonderful thing. I think we should share it with the world. No, God impressed upon them the obligation to be His ambassadors and to declare His reconciling grace among the nations. I love what Paul says at the beginning of verse 18 as he speaks about reconciliation. All this is from God. God has taken the initiative. God has made the first step and the second and the third. God has done it all. All this is from God. Reconciliation is God's work. But how does God reconcile rebels to himself? It's so important for us to understand that because if we misunderstand how he does that, well, then we forfeit grace. We lose out on the opportunity of reconciliation. It's not that God could just forget about our sins. Let bygones be bygones. It's not that God could lower standards and say, well, I realize perhaps that I had set too high of a standard and and they've missed that. And so if I just lower the standard, then things will be okay. It's not that God can forget about sin, because if God doesn't deal with sin as sin deserves to be dealt with, well, that undermines his integrity. For, for God not to deal with sin would be for God to condone sin. And then he wouldn't be the, the thrice holy God that we confess. He wouldn't be the one who is light in whom there is no darkness. No, he would, be, he would be just like us, sinner, just like we are. And so it can't be simply by God forgetting about sin. His justice would not allow it. In fact, his justice, his justice is like a heat-seeking missile that threatens to destroy us. I don't know how much you know about military, but... I don't know much about military, but, but I knew, do know this, that there, there are weapons, or at least there were weapons. They've probably developed now since, since I first learned about them. But there are weapons that you can fire from the ground, and they have this heat-seeking uh, ability so that wherever there's heat, it can trace it and follow it and home in on the target and blow it up. And so if there's a plane flying overhead, the engines emit heat. You shoot off this missile, and that missile will find the plane by tracing its heat. And this is a great illustration of the justice of God. God's justice is a sin-seeking missile. It looks around, and it homes in wherever it finds sin. And when it finds sin, it destroys the sin. And since we are by nature sinners... 
the justice of God is aimed for us and it homes in on us and it threatens to destroy us unless something else happens. Well, here the Apostle Paul says that something else has happened. That though the justice of God requires our judgment, our punishment, our obliteration, God has accomplished reconciliation with sinners so that the sinner is not destroyed nor forgotten, but the sinner is welcomed with open arms into fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So what is it that God has done? Well, he's taken a two-pronged approach. And we find these two prongs in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. The first thing he does is that he made Christ to be sin. Now let's think about it this way. If you are a pilot, and you know that a heat-seeking missile is homing in on you, you can take countermeasures. If you just release a bunch of flares that themselves emit heat, well, then the missile that was aiming for you will then aim for those flares and destroy the flares and blow them up and in the process be blown up itself. And so the countermeasures protect you from the heat-seeking missile. Well, think about the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way, that God's justice is aiming for you. But if it can find some other place where sin resides, well, then it will take its aim from you and instead destroy that other object or that other person that is full of sin. And this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Notice what it says there in verse 21. For our sake, God, that is God the Father, has made him, that is God the Son, for our sake, he has made him to be sin. Now we need to be careful here. Christ never became a sinner, ever. There was no inclination in his holy heart to do what is wrong. And he never had the shadow of sin within him to any degree whatsoever. Notice what Paul says. Christ is someone who knew no sin. And even when God the Father made him to be sin, he remained the one who knew no sin. Christ was never a sinner, ever. He was always perfectly pure, sinless, holy, set apart from sinners, and devoted to God. So what does it mean then when it says that God made him to be sin? Well, we know from other parts of the Scripture that that Christ bears our sins in his body. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Well, that's true enough. Of course it is, because Peter says it's true by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is saying something more, something bolder, something more astonishing. It's not just that Christ bore our sins in his body, as if he took them upon himself and took the responsibility for them. He did that, but it's more than that. It's that God made Christ to be sin. The Holy Son of God, loved by the Father, who always loved the Father, who loved his own, 
This holy Son of God was made to be sin so that He represents sin, that He stands in the place of sin, so that He is sin. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in an astonishing way, that Christ, the holy, pure Son of God, was by the Father made to be sin. There is sin on the cross. And because Christ was made to be sin, then the righteousness and justice of God is looking for sin to destroy, remember. And since it is in Christ who was made sin, then the Lord Jesus Christ suffers everything that sin deserves. It's an astonishing thing. The Holy Son of God, loved by the Father from all eternity, loved by the Father because he was willing to come into the world, growing in favor with God and man throughout his earthly ministry. This Lord Jesus Christ, be it made sin, then suffers everything that sin deserves. And God aims his justice at his Son. He shoots his missile, that sin-seeking missile. And the Son of God, is condemned and cursed and destroyed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was his cry. You might wonder where those sins uh, came from that made Christ to be sin. Because they didn't come from himself. There was nothing in him at all objectionable. So the sins that Christ was made to be are the sins of God's people. So all of our original sin, being conceived and born in sin, all of our actual sins, our blasphemies, our lying, our sloth, our gossip, our slander, our sexual immorality, our theft, our discontentment, our covetousness, all of our sins that make God against us. All of those sins are taken from us and transferred to Jesus Christ so that he becomes sin. It's not his own sin, but it was the sins of his people that are transferred to him. And notice what Paul says. This is what God the Father did. God made him to be sin. He who knew no sin. And he did it, as Paul says at the beginning of verse 21, for our sake. See, the justice of God, now this is, this is something to think about. The justice of God requires sin be punished. God cannot do anything but punish sin. But it's not the justice of God that demands that sin be punished in Christ. No, that's the mercy of God. That's the love of God. The love of God found a way to punish sin without the sinners themselves being punished and for God to maintain his integrity. So that's the first thing. God did countermeasures. 
made Christ to be sin so that the judgment that sinners deserve would home in on Jesus Christ and destroy him in the cross. But there's another thing that God did. It's not only that he made Christ to be sin, though he knew no sin, but he also, when you can supply these words, he also made us the righteousness of God in him. There certainly is a a parallel here. So, So he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, and he made us the righteousness of God, though we knew no righteousness. So even even as Christ was absolutely sinless, we were absolutely righteousless. We had no perfection. Everything within us was deranged and derailed, and everything about us, through and through, we we were tainted and ruined by sin. We knew no righteousness. But then God made us to be the righteousness of God in Him. Now, what's He means there? Does it mean that we become perfect? No. Remember how when Christ, uh, when God made Christ to be sin, Christ did not become a sinner. Remember that? He remained as holy as he ever was. And similarly, when God makes us to be the righteousness of God, we don't stop being a sinner. It doesn't obliterate our sins. It's just that we have the righteousness of God transferred to us. So that just like everything that was bad about us is transferred to Jesus Christ so that he becomes sin, well, everything good about Christ is transferred to us so that we are made the righteousness of God. So all all of our Lord Jesus' holy thoughts, all of his sanctified words, all of his devoted actions, all of his obedience, all of his kindness, all of his tenderness, everything about Jesus Christ in his actions as the God-man become ours because God made us to be the righteousness of God. There is, as scholars have said, this great exchange that takes place. Christ is made to be sin. We are made to be the righteousness of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Christ being made sin meant that he was treated as a sinner and the missile of God's judgment was aimed for him and destroyed him, so we being made the righteousness of God means that we are treated as if we are righteous so that the obedience of Christ becomes our obedience and then God treats us as if we had never sinned and as if we had been as fully obedient as Christ has been obedient for us. And so what does that mean? Well, Well, notice what the Apostle Paul says there in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So it's not that God doesn't have anything against us. He does because we're sinners and we remain sinners even after the righteousness of Christ is given to us. But he doesn't hold our sins against us. He doesn't punish us for our sins. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. 
because in Christ he views us as having no sin whatsoever. Like that is a remarkable thing because you, you know yourself and you stagger to believe this because you know yourself so much. You know that even when you do good things, they're tainted by sin. And yet, if you could see yourself as God sees you in Jesus Christ, there's not an impure thought in you. There's not a selfish action. There's not a sinful word. There's no sin that you can do in Christ that obliterates the righteousness that you have, been, that you have become through the grace of God. God made Christ to be sin. God made you to be the righteousness of God. And there's not a sin that you can do that could ever change that. That's how solid the righteousness of God is in Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Well, here's the interesting thing this morning. I I, I saw this as I was preparing. It's not just what you must do. This passage also places upon me an obligation. So there's an obligation on you, and I'll, I'll tell you what that obligation is. And the reason I'll tell you what that obligation is, because that's the obligation I have. I have an obligation to you because of what God has done in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. But first, what is it that you must do? Well, it is interesting to note that when God made Christ to be sin, Christ consented to that. It's not that God said, I'm bigger and stronger than you, and so this is what I want you to do. I want you to become sin. No, Christ willingly embraced becoming sin. It wasn't against his consent. He gave his will to it. Remember in the Garden of of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He consented. He agreed to be made sin. And as we've seen in the parallels between Christ being made sin and our becoming the righteousness of God, here's another parallel. That just as Christ agreed to be made sin, you must agree to be made the righteousness of God. God doesn't force it upon you. He doesn't coerce you. He doesn't give you the righteousness of God against your will. No, you must consent to it. You must receive it. You must accept it. Now, undoubtedly, uh, the only way that you will be able to accept it is if God, by His grace, changes your heart, takes out the heart of stone that would always resist God and His righteousness and resist friendship with God. He must take that heart out and, and give you a heart of flesh that is amenable and uh, that is shapeable by His grace. But His grace does not obliterate your will as if you must do nothing, as, you must, as if you must just sit there and let God do it all. No, no, you must consent to this. You must receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ because it's only in Him that you have any hope. Without Him, 
There is no hope. So you must receive Christ as your Savior. Take Him as your Lord and bow before Him as your sovereign. That's what you must do. You must receive Christ. What must I do? I must persuade you to receive Him. Just notice what the Apostle Paul says there. He says uh, that not only has, has God reconciled us to Himself, but but He has given us the ministry. This is verse 18. He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation, verse 19. And therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So I, as an ambassador of Christ have this holy obligation and this delightful duty to say to you this morning, be reconciled to God. I have that opportunity to do so because this is what God the Father wishes. This is what God the Son desires. In fact, both implore you through me so that God is speaking to you this morning and saying, be reconciled to me. He's not just saying, like, here's the message of reconciliation, that God was not counting our sins against us, but counting them against Christ. That here it is, take it or leave it. No, he's not saying that. He says, I want you to take it. I want this to be your life, to be your joy, to be your happiness, to be your salvation. I want you to embrace the gospel. I want you to receive the grace of God. And he impresses it. He says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. So receive Christ Jesus that you might be reconciled to him. It's not that God doesn't care whether you're, he wants you to be reconciled. The Lord Jesus appeals to you. He urges you. He presses upon you his claims. And he says, be reconciled to me. And so I'm going to be faithful to my obligation as the minister of the gospel this morning. And I'm going to say to you, some of you are not reconciled to God. Maybe, maybe because uh, you've never been in church before. You've never heard the gospel at all. You, you knew that there was something wrong between you and God, but you didn't know what it was. And, and now this morning you find out it's your sin. And I want to say to you, be reconciled to God. It's no chance. It's not by chance that you're here this morning. God has sovereignly brought you here so that you might hear the message of reconciliation and that you might be reconciled to Him. But some of you have been in the church all your lives. You've been here faithfully. Some of you have been here morning and evening but you're not reconciled to God. And you, you might even know that, that there's this unrest, this unease. You might even have a fear of, of dying and hope that on your way home from church this morning, you're not in a car accident that takes your life and puts you before the judgment seat of God. Because in your heart of hearts, you know you're just, you're not ready to meet the judge of all the earth. 
Or maybe you think you are. But you have no love for Christ. You have no love for His worship. You're just here this morning because that's what you're supposed to do. And it keeps your conscience from harassing you. It's not because you long to hear about Christ or love to gather with the saints to worship Him. No, it's just your duty. That's why you're here. You think you're reconciled to God, but you might very well not be reconciled. And this morning I implore you, I urge you, I persuade you, or I attempt to persuade you to be reconciled to God. Do not let this day pass without receiving Christ Jesus as your Savior so that he would be made sin for you, so that you would be made the righteousness of God. I want to draw you to the Savior. I want to win you to him if that works. If Christ was willing to go over to the side of sin, knowing that it would cost him his life and he would undergo the judgment of God, if he would do that for sinners out of love, then don't you think you ought to go over to the side of life? If he consented to be judged, shouldn't you consent to receive reconciliation? Like, who else would do that for you? No one is so kind, so tender-hearted, so generous as the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, Why would you disdain him? Why would you ignore him? Why would you despise him? and reject him. Let the love of Christ draw you to himself. But if that won't work, well, I have another way. If I can't draw you to the Savior, let me try to drive you to the Savior. Do you realize that if you do not have the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then then you are sin, just as much as Christ became sin for his people. You are sin. And the sin-seeking missile of the righteousness of God is aiming for you, and it will not miss. It will judge you in this life and for all eternity, and you cannot escape it. There's, there's no countermeasures that you can have. There's only one countermeasure. That's Jesus Christ. And, and there's nothing you say that will ever avoid the sin-seeking missile of the righteousness of God. You can try to be better, but that won't cut it because it doesn't remove your sins from you. Justice will still find them. You might read your Bible more. You might be more faithful in worship. You might come to worship in the evening. Who knows? You might protest that you've been baptized. You might confess that you've been a member of the church. It doesn't matter. If you do not have Christ, God's justice will find you and destroy you. So be reconciled to God. I urge you to do so. You might have another day. This might be your last opportunity. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. And I offer Christ to you as a minister of the gospel. I hold Christ to you and say, isn't this a wonderful Savior? Isn't he remarkable? Receive him. Take him. Trust him. Rely upon him. And you will be saved. And you will be reconciled to God.
But Paul isn't just writing to those who don't know reconciliation. He's writing to the whole church, including those who are reconciled. And, And so as a minister of the gospel, to those who are reconciled to God, who have taken the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you to be reconciled to Him again, to take Him once more, to always trust in Him, to always rest upon Him, never, never for a moment abandon Him, never think for a second that, that now that you're a Christian, you can do it on your own. Not a chance. Remember, you're still a sinner. And you need the countermeasures of Christ to deliver you from the justice of God. So receive Christ again. Bask in His glory. Stand astonished at His work for you. And rejoice in the fact that your sins are all forgiven, that God is no longer angry with you, that God cannot be angry with you, that there's, there's nothing in you to anger God because of the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you, and that there's no sin in you that needs to be punished because Christ has taken the punishment for all of your sins. And just delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice in His grace. Be satisfied in His work. Just rest in his goodness. I persuade you, I urge you, I implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And you will know the happiness and delight that Luther felt. He says when, it, when he understood it, he says it was like the gates of paradise opened. And, and this is what your experience will be and should be as a Christian. You lament your sins, you're unsettled by your disobediences, but then you look to Christ, the one who has made sin though he knew no sin, and everything's okay because God has received you in grace. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and Father, who are we that you should be so, so incredibly kind to us? that you should offer Christ to us, that you, you should open our hearts so that we might receive him. All this is from God, and we worship you for that. We pray that uh, as the grace of the gospel has been proclaimed this morning, that no one would receive your grace in vain, that they would not pass it by, they would not ignore it, they would not procrastinate, but they would not leave it for another day. But they would respond confessing their sins and receiving Jesus Christ. We pray that we might joy in him, that you would protect us from all of Satan's snares and lies as he seeks to undermine our happiness in Christ, and that you would hold before our eyes the greatness of Christ and his sacrifice for us. Thank you, O our God, and we pray this in Jesus' name.